Hello and welcome back to the official Saster podcast with your host Harry Stebbings and I'm at H Stebbings on Snapchat. Now today is a very special day and you will not believe this. As you know, I have a little preference for mojitos and as you also might know, Saster is fast approaching with it being less than six months away now. But when we combine the two, mojitos and Saster, we have fun and I want you to join me and Jason for mojitos at Saster and check out this promo code I got Jason to agree to. So if you enter drinks with Harry, those three words, drinks with Harry, when you buy your Sasta tickets. Not only will you get 20% off the tickets, but you'll also be invited to a happy hour with me. What more could you want? So that's Drinks with Harry when you buy your Sasta tickets. However, it's now time for our guest today, and I'm delighted to welcome Lawrence Coburn. Now, Lawrence is the founder and CEO at Double Dutch, the category leader for event marketing automation. If you're at Sasta and have the pleasure of using the Sasta app, yep, that's done by Double Dutch. And they've raised more than 75 million in VC funding from some of the best VCs in the world, including Index, Bessemer, Floodgate, Bullpen. As for Lawrence, he's a three-time entrepreneur, having founded Rate It All, a top 10 consumer review property, and Location Meme, a blog about location-based services. Lawrence is also the geolocation editor for The Next Web. He's a mentor at IO Ventures, a San Francisco-based incubator, and he's also on the advisory board for the Enterprise 2.0 conference. But it's now time for me to shut up, and so I'm delighted to hand over to Lawrence Coburn, founder and CEO at Double Dutch. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Lawrence, such a pleasure to have you on the official Sasta podcast. First, a huge thanks to for J- Jason Lenkin for making the introduction, but thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Harry. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd love to get started today, Lawrence, with a, with a little discussion on how Double Dutch got started and what the founding story was. Yeah, kind of an interesting founding story. So uh, back in the middle of 2010, I was the CEO of a consumer rating startup um, that was completely dependent on Google for much of its traffic. And one morning I, I woke up, I got my coffee on Mission Street, walked into the office, checked Google Analytics, which is what you do when you're working in consumer, and 60% of our traffic had disappeared overnight. It turns out there was a, a Google search engine uh, update uh, called Panda, and it completely wiped us out. And so there was a a couple of days of just sort of uh, complete despair. And I ended up going into a bar in the mission, which is called Double Dutch, and sort of coming to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to be able to save this company. We're going to run out of time and started to think about what the next big opportunity was. And so where we came out, and this was just me and a friend of mine talking in a bar, uh, was that, you know, there was going to be some giant company built on top of mobile for work, for enterprise. And, And what we wanted to do is we wanted to go out and build a company that couldn't have existed before the iPhone. And so that was kind of the premise for Double Dutch. And and from there, it was a lot of experimentation to look at kind of within an org chart and the problems that uh, facing uh, professionals at work and what are some of the areas that that mobile could be be a game changer. And we came up with a couple of ideas, but of course, the one that we ended up settling on was uh, kind of software, engagement software for live meetings, events, and conferences. And that's that's what the business does today. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear what your takeaway is lessons were then from from that fateful experience with Panda and, and with the startup that was prior to Double Dutch? What were the big takeaways for you? Yeah, you know, I think one of the biggest ones, Harry, is that there's all kinds of ways to start a company. I, I've done a couple and some of them have been driven by inspiration. Some have been driven by sort of solving a problem that you have personally. I think Double Dutch was driven mostly in the early days by seeing a big rising tide and sort of a cold 
logical assessment of how can I drop a product into that rising tide and having confidence in the in the intelligence of the folks that you're working with to be able to figure out something really, really powerful. And so I, I think that was the first thing is that it's totally okay to say, hey, that's a market that I'm interested in. I think there's massive opportunity and I'm going to sort of logically and rationally try and come up with a, a, something that solves a big problem in that, in that market. I think that the second big one um, isn't going to sound like a, a real uh, kind of revolutionary message, but it was revolutionary for us. So we actually came up with three really good ideas for, for companies. And, and we ended up building prototypes for all three of them back in January, 2011. So one prototype was a, a mobile collaboration app. We called it uh, pride. As it turns out, it was a lot like Slack. It was kind of messaging and team-based communication. And uh, we came out of the gates and we had, we had a thousand companies using it o- almost overnight. It was incredibly high adoption engagement we didn't know how we were going to make money with it uh, and so that that was one one of the ideas that we had second idea that we had was this uh, mobile uh, CRM it was basically like an extension for Salesforce made it really easy to update a, a, a Salesforce opportunity record. Uh, so something that used to take 10 minutes on the desktop, you could do in 10 seconds on your phone. Really slick, powerful product. And then the third thing that we built was this events thing. And so we were kind of rolling along with all three products. And, and remember, we, we only had like six engineers at the time. So six engineers writing three different products on three different operating systems. So iOS, Android, HTML5. And we didn't even know what to put on the website, right? So because we were selling into three different business units. So in January 2013, we decided to ditch two really powerful big ideas, which was the collaboration app and the and the mobile CRM, and focus on events. And that moment of clarity, it gave us. It was just such a liberating thing, Harry. Like suddenly, we knew what to do. We knew what to put on the website. We knew the kinds of people to hire. We knew exactly where our areas of focus should be. And it was like a giant weight went off our shoulders. And from that moment of January 2013, when we focused, we just grew like a rocket ship. And so what I always tell entrepreneurs is like, you're going to hear this over and over again, but it really does matter. Choose one thing, get really, really good at that, and then potentially expand out from there. Mm-hmm. And you said there about growing like a rocket ship. In the early days, you used SDR as an engine of growth, uh, investing early in building the machine. So how important was that for you in the kind of pivotal growth moments of the company? I can't overstate how crucial SDR has been for our development. So that that moment of January 2013 was one of those really watershed moments for the company where we backburnered two very exciting products. We focused down on live events. And that was the moment. I think we were still only nine or ten employees at that point. We hired a class of six SDRs. And to hire six people into a 10-person company, and those six people are all like 23 or 24 into a, a mostly technical company, it's a terrifying thing. And it, it, it took such a leap of faith to do that. And I think, um, you know, when you read Jason's stuff about SaaS and you read all the success stories and around this, this concept of inevitability, it sounds like it's, it's a lot of science, but it still takes a lot of conviction. I think that moment for us of just uh, hiring a class SDRs and putting them to work, hitting the phones, making 70 calls a day, that was a very uh, crucial moment for our development. I guess, what did you really look for in those SDRs then at that very early kind of preformed stage of the company? Was it a jack of all trades? Was it a specialist? What were your kind of requirements for the spec? Yeah, we, we had no idea. So we, we 
wanted to test a couple of different profiles. So we had a couple folks that were close to new grads, maybe a year or two out. We had a couple of folks that were trying to change careers a little bit, maybe, you know, 30 years old. Like I, I remember there was one guy who was a very successful SDR that was a biology major and been working in a hospital. And he came on as an SDR. I mean, more than anything at that stage, we were looking for culture fit. We were looking for fearlessness. We were looking for passion. We were looking for people that we wanted to spend 10 hours a day in the office with. And that was really our hiring mantra across the board in the early years is like just, it was culture fit. And amazingly of the, of that first initial class of six, I think five are still with us today in 2016 doing uh, bigger and bigger and uh, more strategic things for the company. And then a very difficult question, but now how many people work at Double Dutch? We are about 195. So 195. So how have you managed then to scale from those initial six and scale and retain the culture that you have? I know I, I spoke to your investors uh, and, and they told me that you absolutely have. So how have you looked to retain that culture with the rocket ship growth? Yeah, we've done a couple things. Like we went out uh, super early in, in, as a company. We we did an offsite, a th- like a three day offsite in Monterey, and uh, down and we went down the beach and we spent a lot of time together. We drank too much and we kind of let our guards down. And we spent a about two thirds of a day on culture and, and defining the values of the company that we wanted to build. And um, and you, you kind of look at those values and they sort of sound like everybody else's values. And, and that's just sort of like it comes with the territory. And the in these kinds of exercises, but they really matter to us. And so that sort of grassroots, you take your, your early employees who, who tend out, like if you choose right on those early ones, they are going to be the curators of culture at your company. And you have this whole exercise to define the company you want to be. And then we came up with those five core values. And then that became a filter or a lens that we would put on a lot of decisions. So like tough ethical questions came up, we'd go to our core values. Hiring decisions came up, we'd go to our core values. And so on the hiring side, the other thing that I did is I I really was a bottleneck. I tried very hard not to be, but I, I interviewed everybody that came through the company until about six months ago. And, um, and me putting all that time in, I think it kept some consistency on the, on the culture and it made us, it, it made it so that there were a lot of like-minded folks coming in, um, for better or for worse. And, uh, and I think that's created a really good culture. Mm-hmm. Do you think like-minded is good for a culture or do you think diversity is? I can hear two sides. Sometimes, you know, it's easier first off if you have 10 Stanford engineers, but in the long run, it may not be so good in terms of diverse thinking. What are your thoughts on kind of the... Yeah. Harry, I'm glad you picked up on that. Because even as I was saying like-minded, I, I don't think that was exactly the right word. We we definitely value diversity. And from a very early age, the company has been a mix of, of sales-driven and engineering-driven. And I try and kind of balance back between the two. So I think there's a diversity of, of mindsets in that respect. And um, so I, I don't know. I don't know what the right mix is. And I think a culture is a very organic thing. And I think you can have wonderful cultures that are diverse and you can have wonderful cultures that are more like-minded. And I, I think if anybody had the recipe, they would, they would, they'd be sitting on a big idea because 
I've founded companies where the culture hasn't been very good. And I've founded companies like Double Edge where the culture has been amazing. So I, I know it's not me. So it's it's got this organic aspect to it that's very hard to define. And, and can it, we, we spoke about the team there and the growth of the team. Obviously, inherent within the growth of the team is evolution of team. So, so kind of how have the different roles played out that are necessary at different stages as you scale? Kind of athletes versus specialist style. How have you seen that evolve? and change. Yeah, so in, in the early days, it was definitely um, we were hiring for sort of culture and horsepower and sort of uh, kind of upside over experience um, and all those kinds of things that we, we talked about. And that worked really well. We actually had a, a recruiting pitch in the early days where we would basically say, hey, Double Dutch is startup university and, and you're going to leave us at some point, but it's not going to be to go to another company. It's going to be to go to start your own company. And as part of that contract with you, you're going to get access to me and Pong, the two co-founders, you're going to understand, you're going to get kind of full transparency in the operations of the business, like the sort of the, the burn rate and feedback around the investor meetings. And we're basically going to try and teach you everything that you need to know to start your own company. And then we got to a certain scale where we were still using that pitch and suddenly it didn't make as much sense. It, suddenly, like we would give this pitch and it didn't quite feel right because the people coming in at 150 employees, they weren't getting as much access to me or to my co founder. And it was, it started to feel a little hollow. So we started investigating sort of a, and thinking about a new way to position the opportunity to work at Double Dodge. And we kind of settled in at this tour of duty model that I think Reed Hoffman was the one to, to really articulate well, which is, you know, we're not asking you to come in here and work for five years. If you come in and you give us two or three good years, what we're going to give you is a place where you can develop and grow. And we want to know coming in, what are your career goals? And we will look to develop you in those areas. And and as we sort of evolved as a company, um, I think that the company's needs have started to change as opposed to just more bright, hardworking folks. You get to a scale where you, you actually need some folks that have done it before. Like you need, you need a, a receivables person that knows how to collect money. You need DevOps. You need people that are specialists in, in certain functions. And, um, and, and this is just, I think, a, a fact of, of uh, growing up as a company. I know Oren Hoffman puts it very, very well, which in the early days you need athletes, in the later days you need specialists. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, Oren's brilliant. Um, talking of that kind of transition then in terms of people, I know you transitioned uh, from SMB mid-market focus to much more than mid- to an enterprise focus, sorry. So how did you find that a kind of upstream mobility? And how did you look to differentiate yourself from, from simpler players in the market, let's put it? Yeah, so so this one is, is happening right now. So we've been going through this pretty hard shift up market for the last two and a half months, I think is when we kicked it off. And uh, I think it's a pretty common thing that, that startups are going through, enterprise startups are going through. And I think it, it has to do with the funding environment where kind of in the era between, say, 2012 and 2015, growth was valued above all. And however you got to that growth, it didn't matter as long as you were showing that 150% growth year over year. And I think that when investors are asking for that, startups find a way to give them that. And you end up prioritizing growth over things like unit economics. And if you can 
pile on a bunch of SMB deals, even if the churn rate is high, you can show that meteor uh, like growth. And so what's what's changed um, is I you know there was a perception at least, and it, we'll see how the market shakes out. Was that investors' preferences were changing? Where they valued uh, they still valued growth, of course, but they were also valuing unit economics and the quality of, of that growth. And I think when when that becomes a priority of the investing community, and startups are by definition mostly dependent on investors to survive, at least uh, growth growth startups. I, I think you have to take a look at uh, the, the economics of your business. And I know from experience that it's very very hard to run a SaaS business out of San Francisco with heavy upfront costs with 10K ACV. It's it's very hard to make those numbers work. I would say it's hard to make those numbers work running it out of Phoenix. What I told the company is maybe we could run this out of Manila, but we can't run it out of San Francisco. So when you look those those numbers in the face, you need to find a way to, to get that those deal sizes up and to make sure your, your retention is where it should be and you're focusing on the best use cases of your product because those customers will stay around, will be happy, will refer their friends. So I think it's it's all it's all connected. The, the macro funding environment drives behavior of startups that need that funding. And I think we're seeing that with, a, with the push up market because uh, the larger the client is, the, the more they tend to stick around, the healthier the unit economics of the company become. So I think that's, um, that's something we're seeing across the board right now. In the case of Double Dutch, you can't just wake up one day and say, hey, you know, I want to take that 10K ACV and, and we want to make it 25K. It takes across uh, the board changes. And so some some of the changes that we've been going through to prepare ourselves for that are, you know, one one is on the positioning side. It's you know the the way folks are referring to it now is, is category design. So we never felt that we were a mobile event app. And if you looked around the the landscape, there were hundreds of companies that could take your paper guide and 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 turn it into a, a mobile app. That's not what we did. We've always been about adoption, engagement, leading to tons of data, leading to um, better events, leading to importing that data, exporting that data into other systems or record so all your business processes run better. So we we took it upon ourselves um, with the help of of an agency to come up with a name for that thing. And what we came up with was live engagement marketing. So for the past six months, we've been uh, repositioning ourselves in a new category of software and really talking to our customers to educate the power of having a highly adopted, highly engaged app at their live events and what that can do for the rest of their business. So that was one part of it is, uh, is, is category. The second part of it is, again, the, the focus issue. In a world where growth matters more than anything else, you will take down any deal that comes to your door, whether it's a 5K deal with a terrible use case or a 50K deal with, with a great use case. And in that world, you know, you may be chasing 50,000 accounts globally, but if you want to move up market, you got to show some discipline about the kinds of accounts that you're, you're talking to, about the kinds of accounts that your SDRs are setting up meetings with your reps with. Because if they're filling your reps' days with with low quality, uh, low ACV deals, there's no. You're not going to have time to get to the better opportunities. So it takes a focus on the sales upside, defining the accounts that we're going to chase. It takes a shift on the marketing side from things like SEM to things like account. 
account-based marketing. It takes a shift on how you handle sort of the approvals on deals, like deal floors and things like that. There has to be very clear rules of engagement and clear definition of the kinds of deals that we will approve and the kinds of deals that we will we will not take. So it's been a really educational process for me. Like you know, you wake up one day and say, "Man, that 10k ACV is no good. We got to get it up," and that puts into play this whole domino effect of things that you have to get done across the company. And it's been it's been pretty exciting for us. What's been the biggest challenge in the very uh, challenging and educational upward mobility to the enterprise? What's been the biggest challenge for you? Um, you know, it, I think the biggest challenge is just the volume of things that you have to get right. You have to get the pricing right. You have to get the talent right. You have to get the mix of people. And just because someone was a great SMB salesperson doesn't mean they're going to do well up market. But just because someone was a great SMB salesperson doesn't mean they're not going to do well up market. So how do you give your folks that have thrived in a different system a, a chance to grow and to grow into that? So there's a training piece. There's a comp piece. There's a finance process piece. There's a sales ops piece. There's a product piece. There's a positioning piece. And just managing all that stuff at the same time is uh, is uh, is really exciting. Um, so I think that's the, the biggest challenge is just the volume. And we, we spoke about ACVs there. And uh, naturally, I have a question from the one and only Jason Lampkin. And he, he asks, in terms of kind of customer bases and actual ticket sizes, is it not quite an episodic and inconsistent ticket base in terms of Jason might pay you X amount for Sasta once a year. And does that count as an ARR perspective because it's kind of a once a year style? Yeah. So that that's, um, that's another sort of million dollar question for our business. And I know we never thought of ourselves as a SaaS company until uh, late 2013 when a gentleman named Byron Dieter got involved with a company with a, our Series B from Bessemer. Actually, it was a Series C. Uh, and so when they invested, they started to help us think differently about our business that, you know, events tend to be recurring things. Like uh, many events that exist in the world have been happening for years and years and years and years, and they're going to continue to happen for years and years and years. And beyond that, some of the companies that throw events aren't just throwing one event a year. Like SAP, for example, throws something like 4,000 events a year. And there are many companies like that, that every, every working day of the year, they're throwing multiple events around the world. And so I think it has been an interesting process for us to sort of plug ourselves into a SaaS methodology, but I think it's a really healthy methodology to think think about things like your cost acquisition, to think about like your logo retention, your dollar retention. And I know it's been very helpful for us as a business to get to a healthier place, is to think about put everything through the, the SaaS lens. So to get back to Jason's question, if you are throwing one event a year, we consider that more of a POC in some cases, or in the case of Saster, really a marketing, a cost of marketing, uh, where we are we power Saster not because of the revenue, not because it's beautiful SaaS revenue. We power it because it's an opportunity for us to reach lots and lots of CEOs that will throw events uh, themselves. Uh, and it's a chance for us to spread virally by, by deploying our software. No, it's because you, um, you love working with Jason. Yeah, well, Jason's just a, a joy and a pleasure uh, to work with. So, absolutely. That, that is the answer. That is the answer of record, Harry. And then I want to dive into a 60-second Sasta now. So, it's a quick fire where I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? 
That sounds fabulous. So let's do your favorite SaaS uh, resource. It could be a blog. It could be a book. It could be a specific author. Who is it for you? Oh, man, uh, you're, you're kind of setting me up, but it I, like it has to be Jason Lemkin. Um, and the Saster stuff, we've, we've read, I know my whole exec team and many of our employees have read every single one of those posts. I think we spent we sent 12 people to the event last year. We're going to send more than that this year. So that, that stuff is really good. We also have the good fortune of having access to Christina Shen and Byron Dieter at Bessemer. And obviously those guys really know what they're talking about. If you haven't read the, the laws of the cloud that Bessemer puts out, you should definitely do that. We read David Scock uh, over at Matrix. His stuff is really solid uh, in terms of understanding the, the economics of SaaS. We, we, we read uh, Tom Tungus from Redpoint is, is always a good SaaS read as well from a metrics perspective. I think those are those are the big ones. Uh, we, we also learn a lot from our peers. So I'm a big fan of Owen over at Intercom. I'm a big fan of Nick at Gainsight. And we take every opportunity to kind of connect with those companies and share best practices. And I know my, my execs are tight with execs from a number of other SaaS companies because that's, that's a really good place to get advice as well. Using customer success as a brief- to cover gaps in products? Yes, uh, good one. Um, so uh, we made a decision early on that we were going to put every ounce of muscle that we had into vision. And, uh, and that sounds great, but what that means is that you're not putting muscle into things like automation of uh, recurring processes on the customer success side. So what we've done over the years is we've thrown bodies at that. We've had the good fortune to be able to raise a lot of money. We hired a, a very flexible and smart customer success team that's been able to fill the gaps for our product. We've actually built out a team in the Philippines after speaking uh, with friends that had a lot of success with having an office in the Philippines. So we built out that team to do some of the overnight work that we have to get done. So we've been um, kind of very open about the fact that as we invest every bit of our engineering muscle and division that we are going to fill in the gaps with people. Now, with more pressure on new economics, we're starting to carve out more roadmap for automation of our own processes. And that's that's helping from a sort of efficiency perspective. And then final quick fire question is the importance of investing in BI and analytics. How important is it really? Yeah, um, so that I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that we made here is that we invested too late in a deep understanding of the segmentation of our business, and um, I, I think that it, it feels like a luxury in the early days. But I think if if you really want to be a best in class SaaS company, you have to bite the bullet and invest in a deep understanding of the of the metrics of your business. And I think where it can bite you is that if you if you build this really powerful sales and marketing machine like we did at Double Dutch, where we are just the the deal velocity is there, and we're just closing, you know, on a good day, twenty five deals, and they're just cranking through, you can get to a point where you are taking down many many deals that are not healthy for the business, and is only it is only through segmenting your customers and understanding the unit economics on each segment, each cohort, that you're going to realize what you should be targeting on the on the front of the house. And so if you delay making those decisions, you may have taken in a bunch of business that is actually hurting your company. And so that's a that's a lesson we learned. We now have very, very strong BI and analytics across the company, and it's been really helpful to run the business. And then moving away from the quick fire, but um, still, so, so not to worry on the 60 seconds, but I have a question from a mutual friend of ours, and that's Paul Martino at Bullpen, who's obviously an investor also in Double Dutch. And, and he asks about your experience being hot and cold with investors. You and Double Dutch have gone 
gone through periods where you know quite literally the investors are throwing money at you and then other times when they're not so how do you take this kind of massive contrast in terms of investor preference towards you yeah so that's a that's a good question from paul and so i i think um uh, it actually plays the bullpen strengths a little bit let me let me get to that so in the early days we really struggled to raise we were we were month to month week to week credit cards maxed out i i covered at least one payroll out of my pocket without uh, telling my wife about that and it was it was tough and you're scraping and you're scratching and you're doing whatever whatever you need to do to keep the lights on and so at that point, you need to find investors that, to, to put it bluntly, don't give a shit. Where they, they, They're not afraid to go against the grain. They're not afraid to back uh, folks that maybe haven't sold a company for $100 million before. And we, we ended up finding those folks. So we got our first seed round done with uh, kind of uh, folks that have backed me before. So you, gotta, you go to your network to get that first seed round done. And then we ended up doing well enough that our seed guys did another seed round with us and we ended up doing well enough after that that we were getting meetings with a bunch of the series a guys but we did not quite have enough traction so we had the good fortune of meeting bullpen and those guys fit the profile what i talked about where they're they're confident operators where they're not afraid to take shots where the big brands of Sand Hill Road are, are saying that that's too risky for me. And we found those guys, and they believed in the story, and they backed us, and that that, that really put us on our, our uh, kind of high-velocity, high-growth track. So I think to go from that, I, I had this working theory that the bigger the round, it easier it was. Uh, so you know, our seed rounds were, were really hard. Our, our tweener round was hard. Our A was really hard. And then it started to get easier. So the, the Bessemer round was the fastest round we've ever did. The Mithril round was even even faster than that. And then you, we got up to our, our most recent round, which was KKR. And that was actually a pretty tough round. I think anytime someone's writing a $45 million check to your business, um, there's going to be a lot of diligence. So that sort of challenged my theory of the bigger the round, the easier it gets. But I, I think we have had the opportunity to see both sides where everyone will take a meeting, but no one will cut you a check to the fact where you're oversubscribed in a, in a short period of time. When you look at the fundraising process, what do you think you did well? And what do you think you did badly? Uh, so in the early days, we were definitely too stubborn. I, I remember we went in um, with this three-app story, and I, I talked about the collaboration app, the CRM app, and the events app, and we tried to string it together into this mega sort of mobile-first enterprise suite. And remember, we're a seven-person company at this point, and that we're, we were going to take on like Salesforce, Oracle, and SAP all at the same time, head-to-head. I remember it was uh, George from CRV, who actually participated in our in our seed round, who kind of looked me in the eye and said, Lawrence, these are all good ideas, but you got to choose one. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, George, look at our, look at our revenue numbers, how they're going. And like, like, I I just believe that they were going to follow on and they ended up not following on because of lack of focus. And that really caught my attention. And so we ended up getting rejected. I think we were 0 for 40 in our series A fundraising meetings um, back before we focused. And that was something that we did wrong because I wasted a lot of time. And yeah, we learned a lot talking to 40 smart funds, but I could have learned a lot talking to three smart funds and then uh, adjusting the strategy from that. But entrepreneurs tend to be pretty stubborn. Fantastic. Well, and, and then what do you think you did well? Um, you know, what do we do well? We, we built a killer product that solves a big problem and we built a great company. And I think there's no, there's no getting around that. I think uh, the investors are sophisticated enough that you can't fake it. And 
And I think in the early days, there's a lot more art where you can you can sell mostly on vision. But what we did well is we built a, a really good company, and that that attracts capital. Well, Lawrence, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Genuinely, really, really enjoyed this interview. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Harry. That was fun. Such a pleasure to have Lawrence on the official Sasta podcast today, and a huge thanks to Jason Lampkin for making the introduction. And do not forget what I said earlier. If you'd like to join us at Sasta with also 12 or more of the Double Dutch team and see the amazing Double Dutch app in action, then do not forget to buy your tickets on Sasta.com. And if you want to join me for the happy hour, then simply enter the promo code Drinks with Harry, uh, and you'll get 20% off your tickets, and you'll get a happy hour drink session with me and Jason. As always, we so appreciate all your support for the show, and we look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode.